What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, sponsored by peer-run support communities Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. Today our guest is Ethan Waters. Ethan is a San Francisco-based author and freelance journalist. He's been writing about psychiatry for over 20 years, and his recent book is Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche, published by Free Press. So welcome to Madness Radio, Ethan Waters. Thank you, Will. Thank you for having me on. Ethan, you've written a really interesting book about the way in which the United States and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is kind of being exported as a product around the world and then reshaping how mental illnesses, mental health diagnoses are received in different, in different cultures. And maybe we should get started just by asking, well, isn't, isn't psychiatry, isn't mental illness really a medical issue? Why is it that you've discovered a lot of diversity around the world? Why is it that you see this international difference taking place Yes, I think every generation of psychiatrists would like to make the case that they have moved beyond culture, that they are now seeing these disorders is, uh, they're in their solid state form and their universal form. But even the briefest look across history uh, shows us that culture shapes the expression of mental illnesses. That is, the expectations of the people around you, the healers, the family members, one's own expectations about how the mind works and how, uh, you know, what disorders are salient deeply influences the uh, the expression of these diseases. So you look back, say, in Victorian-era England, and you see tens of thousands of women having uh, experiencing hy- hysterical leg paralysis or hysterical blindness, for, for instance. That uh, illness rose and became very popular uh, during a period and then simply went away. The same is true of uh, Ian Hacking's The Mad Travelers, where young men would travel in fugue states across uh, you know, Europe with no sense of their identity and no sense of uh, who they were. Another example of an illness that sort of becomes salient in one moment in history and then disappears in another moment in history. And the thesis of this book is that um, that's not gone away, that every generation has an idea about the human psyche, an idea about mental illness, and those ideas deeply influence the unconscious minds of people that suffer from these conditions. So that's the number one premise of the book. And then the second premise of the book is that because America is so good at shipping our ideas across borders, we categorize these illnesses, we make the drug treatments for these illnesses, we, we convince the rest of the world to think like us in this way. So if you put those two ideas together, you have this sort of uh, uncomfortable premise that indeed as we export our ideas around the world, we may not only be change the way people categorize and treat these illnesses, but we may be changing these illnesses themselves. We may be actually homogenizing the way the world experiences mental illness. Now, you've got a number of really detailed examples from around the world that illustrate uh, the themes you're discussing, but let me just start by asking something that comes up a lot on on Madness Radio, is is the question of whether we can really conceive these 
as diseases and illnesses if they are so shaped by culture, society, and they do end up turning out to be very, very different in the cultural, political, and economic context that they're in. Because a disease, we think of a disease like tuberculosis or cancer, I mean, it pretty much is something that appears different cultures pretty much physically the same way. You can look at it under a microscope, you can do certain kinds of blood tests, but with what we're calling mental illness or disorders or mental disease, it's really kind of a different experience. What's your view about that? I think we're never going to understand these conditions unless we understand them as a combination of genetics, biology, uh, social psychology, and our cultural understanding of these things. So in the American mind, though, it's oftentimes when you say something is, for instance, psychosomatic, what people would hear you saying is that people are faking their illness. And my case is that uh, something like PTSD is indeed uh, different over different, uh, you know, soldiers in different wars have experienced different types of PTSD because they have different cultural beliefs about the mind. So a soldier in the Civil War would have come home with DaCosta's syndrome, which is a pain in the chest and a sort of severe homesickness, you know. And a soldier in First World War would have had shell shock, which symptoms would have been largely physiological, sort of motor tics and paralysis and that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that those soldiers were faking those symptoms. They were simply, their unconscious mind was responding to the beliefs about the mind that were salient at the time. So I'm making this very hard to understand case, especially hard for Americans to understand, that this, the idea is that things like PTSD and things like depression and things like hysteria are true for given times and places, but not true for all times and places. I'm not saying these illnesses are false or are not deeply felt, but they are indeed combinations of cultures. And so I do think the premise of your question is that I would agree they exist in a different category than you know biological infections and things like cancer. I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a parallel because a cancer, by and large, doesn't care what you think about it. A, a mental illness like depression or like PTSD, uh, does indeed matter how you think about it, and, and more specifically, how the people around you think about it and categorize it. And I think also there's a whole question of the way in which the categories themselves, the DSM, the criteria for what gets called a disorder and what doesn't get called a disorder, is very political, and we've talked a lot about that on on Madness Radio, the shifting diagnostic categories themselves. But let's get into the examples that you have from the book, because you've, you've written a really amazing investigative work on how this actually takes place in different cultures. And one of the first things that you talk about in the book is eating disorders and anorexia in Hong Kong. Now, tell us about what you learned about that. Right, so I profiled a, uh, a psychiatrist there named Sing Lee, and he was uh, a very interested in the 1980s to try to find out whether anorexia existed in Hong Kong because it just wasn't in the medical literature there. So he went back and looked at uh, you know decades of hospital records to try to find if see if he could find this illness in the Hong Kong population. And indeed, indeed, he did find a few examples of it. Um, they were it was a very rare disorder. Uh, and it also didn't have some of the aspects of it that is very common in America. It didn't have um, body dysmorphia, and it didn't have fat phobia, and it didn't seem to be connected to diet crazes or the desire to lose weight. So he was in the midst of documenting this very specific form of Chinese self-starvation at a moment in time when the ground sort of suddenly shifted underneath him. Suddenly, you, in the mid-'90s, you had this rise of the American form of anorexia. And I traced that. Uh, showed this cultural shift to the death of one young woman on a downtown Hong Kong street who collapsed and died on her way home from school, who's clearly an anorexic. But at that moment, the press in Hong Kong, because this woman had died in such a public way, had to sort of 
tell the population what this illness was. What did this woman die? What caused her illness? Uh, what are the symptoms that come with this? And at that point, basically, the uh, Hong Kong media turned to the West because we are known to be, you know, experts in this area, in the general area of psychiatry, but also specifically with eating disorders. And they basically imported this idea of anorexia and said, you know, it's young women, it's, it has these other symptoms. And it was only after that young woman died in uh, 1994 that you saw a rise of the American form of the illness. So the case I'm making in the book is that anorexia can can go along cultural currents. I think most people would believe that, they, and they would think of cultural currents like eating, uh, you know, diet trends, exercise trends, fashion trends, and so forth. But the case I make in the book is that it also can uh, go along other cultural currents, and one of those cur- cultural currents is indeed our public discourse about the illness itself, that things like anorexia are pretty clearly, you know, they can be like social contagion. And you have to remember, this was a very nervous time in Hong Kong's history. This was uh, after, you know, Tiananmen Square on the mainland and before the changeover uh, to Hong Kong rule. And it was a time of quickly changing roles for women. There was lots of emigration. Uh, it was a very stressful time for this population. But as one of my favorite scholars pointed out, there is no one way for a population in that time in history to express that form of distress. This is when the unconscious mind goes to uh, what um, cross-cultural psychiatrists, uh, they look towards the symptom pool of their time. And again, this is the idea that certain symptoms will be accepted as legitimate in certain times and places and others will not, and your unconscious mind will be drawn towards the symptoms that effectively communicate your distress. And and at one point in Hong Kong history, uh, anorexia was not in that symptom pool. And then at a, you know, a decade later, it was in that symptom pool, and it drew more and more women to that behavior. So you're not saying that there were all of these anorexics, uh, women who were starving themselves, who were extremely suffering from not eating and negative body image, all the things that we associate with anorexia in the United States. You're not saying that there were all these women in Hong Kong who were there, but just what weren't discovered. You're actually saying that the actual phenomenon itself came as a result of the Hong Kong media educating people in Hong Kong to expect and have a preconception and to start to think of themselves in a new way. And that's where the export of culture dynamic comes in. Is that is that right? That's exactly right. So that you have the, the discourse about, I'm basically making the case of the prime creators of that symptom pool. For instance, that symptom pool, that's the idea that that certain symptoms are legitimate and certain symptoms are not. The prime creators of that symptom pools are the healers in a given time period. So it is the healers that declare this is a legitimate symptom and this is not, and it's oftentimes, and this is what you saw with hysteria as well, and it's and that's when the unconscious mind responds to those cultural expectations. And the point is that this is happening on an unconscious level. This is the unconscious mind looking to the culture that they're in to understand what is the language of suffering for my moment in history? And in a given moment in history, you'll, 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 your unconscious mind will look to culture and it will find hysterical leg paralysis. In another time, it'll find stomach pain. In another time, it'll find anorexia. Um, and and uh, what I don't think we've fully understood yet is that cultural connection, but also the fact that the healers in our any given time are largely... Um, behind the creation of that symptom pool. That's not to say that they're behind the psychopathology that causes people to look to that symptom pool, but they are behind the symptom pool, uh, and they oftentimes, and now that now I think we know that that symptom pool can drift across cultural borders, especially 
when you have the sort of uh, social uh, psychiatric influence that America does around the world. So you're saying that that Hong Kong's culture and society becomes more like the United States, that there's a homogenization process that happens, and the way in which that is transmitted is through the healers, the professionals, the doctors, the medical establishment adopting an American Western view of this is the disease, this is the disorder, we're going to call this anorexia the way that the people in the United States do, and then the people in the society actually respond to that, and then you start to have the appearance of anorexia, people with anorexia in Hong Kong, where you didn't actually have that before. That's exactly right. So this is not a case of them, of of Hong Kong, simply not recognizing that they had anorexics among them. And in fact, anorexia is a very difficult disease not to see when it's there because the symptoms and consequences are so remarkable. And I think with examples from other disorders that we're going to be speaking about, it's even more pronounced. But of course, the consequence of that is that suddenly you have a market created where you didn't actually have a market for U.S.-based pharmaceutical interventions, medical interventions. And so a lot of this is really a political economic process. That's exactly right. And uh, that is the case that I make in uh, uh, the last chapter of the book, which has to do with Japan and the, the homogenization of the idea of depression and, and how, where we draw the line between uh, sadness that is normal and sadness that is pathological. And indeed, one of the primary vectors of this spread around the world is the tremendous amount of resources that drug companies put behind uh, the promotion of the American sort of standard of, of where to draw these lines. And uh, Japan was this fantastic example of uh, GlaxoSmithKline and other drug companies going in there and really intentionally trying to influence culture on this level. So previously in Japan, you didn't have a concept of depression. So you did have a concept of depression, but it was thought of in this way. It was, it's often it translated as endogenous depression, and it was considered a severe and rare form of mental illness. So that is, if you had uh, this sort of form of endogenous depression, you would be considered severely mentally ill in all likelihood in, uh, you know, in a psychiatric hospital. It was rare as well. So, uh, and of course, Japan has the full spectrum of sadness of any culture, but uh, anthropologists uh, have pointed out that Japan has a cultural embrace of sadness. That is, it's written into the songs, it's written into the music, it's part of the religion. That there's a belief about sadness that it can be a place where you find moral guidance. This is not an emotional state to be afraid of. It's not an emotional state to instantly run away from or try to cover up, uh, as we often do in the West. It reminds me of the history of depression in the United States, where there was, in Europe, there was this idea of melancholy prior to depression. And it was seen with greater esteem. It was seen as a source of poetic inspiration, of a certain kind of a noble experience. And then something happened in Japan where that different view of sadness was changed into the pathology, the disease of depression, which is then a market for antidepressants. How did that process take place? What is it that GlaxoSmithKline, the huge pharmaceutical company that sells antidepressants, what did they do to actually make that change happen in Japan? Well, the most fascinating thing that I, I think they did, I talked to a cross-cultural psychiatrist up named Lawrence Cremere up in uh, McGill, and he told me this fantastic story about GlaxoSmithKline actually co-opting the very profession of cross-cultural psychiatry. And cross-cultural psychiatry is filled with these remarkable scholars who know a great deal about how cultures differ in these ways. And in many ways, they, you know, they really value and prize those differences, like a biologist would value and prize the differences of plant species. 
And GlaxoSmithKline went in and actually threw a lot of money at these cross-cultural psychiatrists because they wanted to know what they knew. And what they knew was about how cultures shape the experience of mental illness. And for a time, even Lawrence Kramer, who's really one of the stars in this field, was a little bit romanced by the amount of money and about attention GlaxoSmithKline was lavishing on him uh, at these uh, incredibly luxurious conferences and these travels. Because he was co-opted momentarily by that group, he did get this fantastic inside story story about watching these GlaxoSmithKline scholars. Um, these weren't just the marketing men. These were people that knew a great deal about culture and uh, mental illness. He, you know, he got to watch firsthand how GlaxoSmithKline was intentionally going in and thinking about how do we move the line in Japan? So you have this you know, full spectrum of sadness, but we want to move the line between where the normal and the pathological was. Because as we said before, the, the line for where the normal and the pathological was was way over on one side. It only thought of it really severe forms of sadness as pathological, and everything else was considered to varying degrees culturally normal. They learned from these cross-cultural psychiatrists you know, about how Japan had shaped its experiences over time, and they began to co-opt the Japanese psychiatrists into the, into the camp to suggest that actually the American form of depression, where you have sort of a few weeks of sadness as being indicators of a pathology. Again, you know, you often find these changes in societies happening at moments of stress on the society. So this was the 1990s, which was a very bad time economically for Japan. There was been the Kobe earthquake. There was this general sense that America was doing something right in the way it thought about the human mind. So the culture itself was actually fairly receptive to it. And so GlaxoSmithKline spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars sponsoring conferences, co-opting uh, Japanese psychiatrists, advertising, creating uh, what appeared to be uh, grassroots uh, depression support groups, all in, in the attempt to sell Paxil, uh, which they had spent a great deal of money getting through the approval process in Japan. And it would not be enough simply for them to corner the market on the few cases of endogenous depression. They intended GlaxoSmithKline spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, both uh, co-opting local uh, Japanese psychiatrists, uh, spending a great deal on advertising, uh, creating these sort of web-based uh, groups that appeared to be grassroots depression support groups. Um, they sponsored conferences. Uh, they threw a tremendous amount of money uh, with the, the, the idea of not only uh, marketing a pill, Paxil, but marketing the American form of depression. Uh, and indeed, you know, the rise of people that now classify themselves as depressed or have a prescription for Paxil in Japan has just been remarkable. This is a billion-dollar business now, uh, whereas before it was not it was considered a very rare disorder in Japan. So the manufacturers of Paxil, the antidepressant, GlaxoSmithKline, go into Japan. They see that there are all these people who are maybe sad but they aren't really considered to have depression. They aren't considered to be diseased or disordered, and they certainly don't need psychiatric treatment. And then they actually created a whole market by redefining that experience culturally. And you said that the market now for Paxil in Japan is more than a billion dollars? Over the last 10 years, it's definitely been more than a billion dollars. The, the sort of yearly uh, totals change, but the, there was not a market there before for antidepressants. And to make a market there, they not only had to uh, convince the culture that they were uh, that they should take this pill, but they had to convince the culture that more people have this disease than they considered before. What would you say to someone who says, well, look, okay, maybe Japan didn't have a definition of depression. They didn't have that view 
of it as a disorder, but all those people who were sad, who were now taking Paxil, those were really people who were kind of discovered as depressed, and they really did need something that they didn't have. Well, again, I think you have to look at the broader cultural story. So were people that were sad, were they finding solace in the rich literature and stories that Japan devoted to the state of sadness and poetry? And were they finding solace in uh, the religions, which were, you know, had a great deal of tolerance for sadness? But I think the argument that you just mentioned is not without its validity. And for instance, you know, there has been a decline of the suicide rate in Japan, which is quite high in the 90s, uh, since the introduction of antidepressants to the culture. So I, I think it's not necessarily always the case that uh, our technology is uh, wrong or bad or that uh, you know, these interventions ha have only negative outcomes. I don't think that's true. I think it is more true to say that we are not considering all the outcomes and then considering how deeply we are affecting and changing cultures when we import our Western ideas about the mind and mental illness. And I think my, my book hopes not, not to sort of make only the case that these, these interventions are negative, but that uh, other people have deeply sophisticated and uh, long-held beliefs about the human mind that are tied to their culture, that are tied to their expressions of these illnesses, then we need to have a greater respect for them and understand how they work and what they mean in these cultures before we uh, go blasting in there with uh, you know, multi-million dollar ad campaigns um, promoting the American way of thinking about sadness. Well, I think the the question of antidepressants and suicide, that's a very complicated question. We could sort of get into that because there could be a lot of different reasons why the suicide rate has gone down. And there and there certainly are, re, are a lot of research suggesting that antidepressants can contribute to suicide because there there have been some warnings from the FDA about that, for example. So, And the Japanese have put a black label warning on Paxil in, in regards to its use for adolescents. So they are seem to be, uh, at least on a uh, regulatory level, very convinced by uh, some aspects of that research. I do think I would agree with uh, sort of uh, what I think are David Healy's con conclusions that uh, oftentimes um, antidepressants increase uh, suicidality or the potential for suicidality in one population uh, where it might uh, de decrease it in another and you're trading, you're sort of trading off risk when you put these drugs in place. And I think that, that the question about antidepressants and uh, suicidality, especially in those first weeks of use, is, is a great scandal. And I think what's being discovered by the Senate hearings run by Charles Grassley and so forth has, has been a, a tremendous black mark on the pharmaceutical industry. Well, it also raises the question of if the conception of sadness has been replaced by the idea, idea of depression by this marketing influence then perhaps the whole cultural understanding of what suicide is and how it relates to everything has been changed as well. And it's a huge area that opens up for investigation and understanding because what you're saying is that something really important and unique and deeply poetic and literary and philosophical and religious about Japanese culture has, in a sense, started to be lost by this marketing effort from U.S. pharmaceutical companies that are basically about increasing sales of their products by having a very, very deep impact on changing how the culture understands itself historically around something as basic a human experience as, as sadness. I think that's exactly right. I mean, these uh, ideas go very deep within cultures, and once we've won the conceptual uh, marketing battle, you can lose... Uh, notions of the mind and um, beliefs about the human mind, beliefs about things like sadness and suicide, um, they can become extinct to that culture. Uh, I think sort of conceived of these cross-cultural psychiatrists that I've interviewed and talked to 
as akin to those biologists in the rainforest, where they are excitedly and hurriedly documenting the changes, that, the, the differences they see around the globe, while that those differences are liter- quite literally disappearing in front of their eyes. Now, now, the question of what we do to treat sadness or how we respond as a culture to something like sadness is, is, is very different than something like trauma. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is the tsunami and how that affected Sri Lanka. And many, many uh, Westerners, part of development efforts, part of aid efforts, went to Sri Lanka to help people in this incredibly catastrophic moment where an entire culture, an uh, entire society was traumatized. But you're saying that actually the dynamic is, is very similar to the, what you saw hap- what we saw happen in Hong Kong and Japan in your explanation. Tell us about the experience in Sri Lanka with trauma and the tsunami. Absolutely. Well, this is a case where I think we're going into another culture. We're not going in there with a profit motive. Oftentimes the trauma counselors that uh, volunteer to go into other cultures at moments of great distress are doing this on their own dime. They're, they're legitimately trying to help out. Uh, other populations. But the problem is that even uh, our I- idea of PTSD, our idea of post-traumatic stress disorder, and the checklist that we have and uh, of the symptoms does not ca- account for all the symptoms around the world. And uh, you know, as one anthropologist said to me, he said, he said, meaning matters when it comes to psychological trauma. Our initial response to it, the fight-or-flight response, the adrenaline, the fear, uh, the sense of uh, you know, the unthinkable happening may, may indeed be fundamentally universal, but the very moment after the trauma, when we begin to assess what has happened to us, begin to look for how do I understand this trauma and how do I express the distress that I feel from it, that instant onward is shaped by culture. It matters a great deal whether you think of the mind as we do in the West, for instance, as the egocentric mind that exists sort of separate from other people, or if you think of the mind as they do often in Sri Lanka and other places as a sociocentric mind, which is my sense of self is intimately tied to my place in the group. It matters. Those two conceptions matters when it comes to the consequences of trauma. And someone uh, in Sri Lanka, for instance, would likely see the consequences of the trauma not as existing in their minds the way we think of PTSD, but existing in the trauma and the damage done to the social group and their ability to fulfill their role in that social group. When a Western counselor rushes into a disaster zone like Sri Lanka with no knowledge of that different conception of the mind, with no knowledge of the language or the rituals for grieving or healing, with no knowledge of the you know the long history of civil war there, that they'll often simply miss these distinctions. They won't see them. So the, the deeper knowledge of this that I wrote about in the book, I think, comes from anthropologists who spend a great deal of time talking to Sri Lankas without that PTSD checklist about what was the meaning of this event. If, for instance, as I suggested, that a Sri Lankan would see the damage done to them as done to their role in the social group or to their social group as well, it makes no sense for them to seek healing in a private, you know, let me let me go away from my social responsibilities and heal with a private one-on-one counselor, for instance. And that's very common in the West where a soldier coming home, they might be troubled by their battlefield trauma. They think of the, the PTSD existing as a sickness in their mind, and they say, well, I'm going to need to take time away from my responsibilities to do this healing. That makes sense to us, and that's, not, that's neither wrong nor right, but it just conforms to our beliefs about PTSD. For a Sri Lankan, to take time away from their social group makes no sense at all because it is in their place in that social group that they are finding their, their deepest sense of themselves. So to suggest that to take time away from that is, is actually to suggest the very symptom that's most troubling to them. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Ethan Waters, the author of Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche. 
So what would be the way to help someone? How can someone who's been traumatized by the tsunami in Sri Lanka actually get the help that they need if it's not sitting down with a Western-style counselor and having this individualistic response? The best way to think about it is I think we should help other cultures in distress. And I think what we should assume when we go in there is that other cultures do indeed know that bad events have psychological consequences and not treat PTSD as if we're telling them about a newly discovered disease. They undoubtedly know that the trauma has psychological consequences and that culture undoubtedly has modes of healing. And those modes of healing may be hidden within religious beliefs. They may be hidden within family structures. They may be hidden within the culture's own conception of the human mind and how the human mind goes through the world. So what we do to help that other culture is not sort of say, here's a bunch of trauma counselors, try it our way, and here's this checklist, but rather to help rebuild the local cultures, do whatever we can in terms of rebuilding the church and rebuilding the schools and getting people housing. And we can assume that within those societies uh, that there are indeed ways of healing and understanding and dealing with trauma that we may not understand, or, but they are there, and it's our responsibility to help the society get up and running such that they can do their own healing. So the society may have its own way of dealing with trauma, but it won't necessarily look like a medical, psychological therapy response. It could be in rituals, it could be in family structures, it could be in the religious practices that the culture has, or just as simple as getting the society back on its feet in terms of agriculture and and jobs and housing and kind of seeing the problem less from a medical perspective and more from a community development perspective perspective. And it reminds me of an interview that we did with a psychiatrist from Ireland, Pat Bracken, who I spoke with on Madness Radio, who's done a lot of work in Uganda. And he was saying is essentially the same thing that you're saying, that this individualistic idea of a person has a diagnosis and then we provide them with treatment individually just doesn't work in a different context, that it's a community response that's really needed. It not only doesn't work, but it, it can actively sort of work against the cultural understandings. And indeed, you can step on metaphorical landmines in this situation, too. And I had one anthropologist who'd done a great deal of study about uh, Western counseling in Sri Lankan villages before the tsunami. And she suggested the very troubling idea that within these small villages, there was often sort of socially prescribed ways of talking about past violence to avoid the flare-up of of cycles of revenge violence. Because oftentimes in these little towns, you had the family of the murdered victim living next door to the family of the murderer. And you had families that had a great deal of reasons to hate each other. And there was this pressure to talk only euphemistically about past violence. And into that very delicate balance came Western trauma counselors with this idea that the real way to heal was to do this truth thing where you talked about the violence and you almost uh, sort of emotionally relived it. And that's a Western idea. It makes sense here, but it does not make sense in those villages. And her worry indeed was that this had the real potential to spark cycles of revenge violence. And I think it's part of a larger discussion about the role of aid and development assistance and charities going into other cultures and having a conception of what helps, but then actually causing a tremendous amount of damage potentially. That's exactly right. I mean, I think we've learned that there's blowback to these things that we haven't that we need to fully think about and I think enlisting the anthropologists in this process and the people that truly know and thought a great deal about how to go into other cultures and be culturally sensitive is very important. I mean, anthropologists sort of just shake their head at the hubris oftentimes. I mean, one, one anthropologist asked me to imagine the scenario reversed. Imagine that after 9-11 or Katrina that the healers 
come from you know Mozambique to knock on the doors of the family victims of the deceased and say you know we need to help you through these rituals to sever your relationship from the dead I mean would that make sense to us I mean of course it wouldn't and we seem to have no problem doing the reverse and I think we do that because we think that things like PTSD are culturally neutral and universal and it just takes you know not very long at all to realize that they are not. Ethan, one of the things that we talk a lot about on Madness Radio is the idea of schizophrenia, that schizophrenia is seen as a disease, it's a brain disorder, it's genetic, it is universal, it's something that we discover out in nature, and then actually schizophrenia is much, much more complicated, and it has a very different experience in different cultures. Tell us about the research that you did in um, Tanzania about how schizophrenia is experienced there in a very different way. I followed an anthropologist down to Zanzibar who was trying to figure out this very interesting question that exists in the literature, and it's a very famous, perhaps the most famous cross-cultural result, and it was uh, a World Health Organization study that was done over several decades, and it appeared to show that uh, schizophrenics in different cultures, people with schizophrenia in different cultures, had remarkably different outcomes, and in general, people in developing countries did much better than people in the first world, and it's a result that people have just thought about and theorized about a great deal. Robert Whitaker thinks that it has a lot to do with the fact that people in the uh, developed world are more likely to get the drugs, which over time do them more harm than good. I was looking at this from a cultural perspective, and I followed an anthropologist down to Zanzibar who was doing what great anthropologists do, which is sit with families and try to understand what language they're using to talk about this illness. How are they conceiving of this? How are they interacting with their ill individual? And uh, this anthropologist, Julie Magruder, found was that ideas of spirit possession, which often accompany the illness down in in, uh, Zanzibar, were often used in a way that kept the ill individual within the group. That is, they were not. It was not a stigmatizing notion. It was a normal. It was a normalizing notion. Actually, said, "Hey, this is something that happens. It's part of our culture. Spirit possession is something that people go through. So you're one of us. You're going to stay with the family, stay with the social group. We're not going to put you away in an institution or a group home or something separate from the rest of the society." Exactly. We're not going to view you as separate. And I do think that's sort of a critical distinction when you talk about illness narratives across the board. Uh, which of these ideas tend to keep the ill individual within the group and which of these ideas tend to kick them out? And unfortunately, we've thought in the West about that biological notion of mental illness, the illness like any other, the biogenetic uh, sort of paradigm of mental illness. We thought of that as a notion that will decrease stigma, that people will see this just like you have diabetes or something like that. And what the social psychologists and psychologists that have studied this around the world have found, it's really remarkable, which is that people who adopt the genetic biological narrative about mental illness tend also to be the ones that want less to do with the people that are diagnosed with mental illnesses, tend to think of them as more permanently broken and more uh, dangerous than they do when they employ a a different type of narrative, such as this behavior is caused by something like childhood, for instance. So it ends up actually increasing discrimination, increasing stigma. Exactly. We just assumed that would do the opposite, but the studies around the world show that as we have won this rhetorical battle about mental illness, that we've been losing the war against stigma. So there are still places such as uh, in Zanzibar where other narratives are employed to explain this behavior. What Julie Magruder uh, ended up concluding was that the use of that spirit possession notion, that, that narrative that kept the ill individual within the group that explained their behavior, actually lowered levels of what psychiatrists call expressed emotion, which is um, the intensity of emotion that surrounds the illness within the family group. So 
family members with high expressed emotion were people that were critical or overly involved in the cognitions of the person that they considered ill. And what we've uh, found in general, and this is true across cultures, is that families that have high levels of expressed emotion about the ill individual also have ill family members that have a greater relapse rate and who do worse over time. So the common thread here is the idea that if you normalize the experience, if you say this is part of something that that is human, that we go through this, it's not something that we have to make outside or separate or be afraid of, that the person is going to get bad, better, faster, and have much better outcomes. And, and in a different cultural context, like Tanzania, normalizing it would, for that context, be this is spirit possession. This is something that fits into our spiritual religious view of the world, and that, that's what you're going through. In that culture, it allows for almost an acceptance of the behavior. And that's a weird, for an American, when you have a family member have a psychotic break or descend into some sort of distressful mental state, we, we just have this idea, and it's a, it's a very American notion of it. Like, we want to fix it. We want to get in there and treat it and fix it and figure it out. And in places uh, like Zanzibar, where you employ the spirit possession belief, there is less of that. And I think what the literature very uh, effectively shows is the more you can sort of tolerate and accept the behavior, the more likelihood that the ill individual will eventually do better over time. But it's certainly not in our American character to do that, to say, like, you know, we're just we're going to accept this behavior. We want people to straighten up and fly right. Yes, and that's exactly why there's such a push for this idea of mental diversity or seeing things as, as part of a range of human experience. Um, one of the cornerstones of the Hearing Voices movement, for example, has been to really emphasize that, look, hearing voices is basically normal. It's part of, it may be somewhat statistically rare, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be separated from humanity, and many people hear voices. And so rethinking these experiences along a spectrum of diversity, there's just a, commu- a continuum of possibilities that doesn't say that we have to exclude people, but actually we can expand our understanding of what's normal and thereby accept and make more acceptable the what it is that someone's going through is going to lead them to a much better opportunity for recovering, getting better, not being stigmatized or discriminated against, but remaining part of the society and then being able to come back. And before I kind of bring it back to the U.S., I want to just ask you again about about Zanzibar and, and Tanzania. Does the actual what we're calling schizophrenia look like? I imagine it's very different in that context, that, that, that actually the symptoms or the signs of schizophrenia are, are different. Is that right? I, I think that's true. I mean, I think every culture certainly at the, at the, at the baseline level differs in the types of sort of hallucinations and, and, and notions. So because you have this spirit possession narrative, oftentimes the, the sense of hearing voices and so forth is very much tied up in religious beliefs and you're hearing uh, a different thing. So, you know, cultures certainly define, uh, at least on that most superficial level, the content of delusional hearing voices and so forth. Our Western ideas of schizophrenia have re- reached all the way down to Zanzibar. They, they have a mental hospital there. They have uh, mental health healers. So oftentimes it's this very interesting thing where you have this spirit possession belief existing side by side with Western ideas. And sometimes you think they would always be in conflict, but sometimes they simply exist side by side. There is this notion of uh, drug treatment and so forth for schizophrenia and that exists side by side with this notion of spirit possession. 
So there is no place uh, in the world where the idea of mental illness is not influenced by the Western notions anymore. They they exist all over all over the place. Ethan, one of the things that talking with you makes me think about is just the way in which uh, the United States we're a multicultural society, and so you've been talking about the sort of the global implications of your research. But I think that the insights that you have about the marketing, the politics, the cultural context, the way in which we interpret experiences being um, variable, highly variable, and also the way in which we're not discovering something that's natural, biological, genetic that's just out there, but we're actually participating in, in a sense, in constructing it or creating it. I think this has enormous implications for how we understand what gets diagnosed as mental illness in the United States. What do you think are the implications of your work for for thinking about mental health issues here in the U.S. and in in Western countries? It is a very interesting question. As you suggest, we have many immigrant cultures to varying degrees isolated or assimilated into our cities and our nation. And then you have, you know, variety of mental health apparatuses within those cultures. And the, the difficult thing is, it's, it's very difficult to say anything that could be uh, true across those uh, mixes. So you have, uh, you know, Latin American cultures who have different beliefs about schizophrenia existing in Los Angeles, interacting with a, mental, you know, obviously an extremely westernized mental health apparatus. What can be done in that specific situation? And I think that's uh, you know, mostly I was looking across borders because I could see the distinctions more clearly. You have to, you know, when you talk about a specific example, you have to talk about you know, the level of acculturation that, you know, that one, you know, one subgroup has within one particular community and the, the ways in which uh, that mental health apparatus might be able to utilize that other culture's beliefs to uh, help healing. I guess, so it's very hard to say anything that's true in all those cases because the it just becomes incredibly complicated. I guess maybe I would say that I think within those immigrant cultures, um, as they exist in the United States, uh, I think it's important to um, at least alert mental health healers that there are narratives and there are beliefs that might be very valuable and to not simply uh, attempt to apply um, Western notions in every case, um, because I think uh, we, we can assume that you, to the extent that a culture s- stays salient for a, a given population in America, it, within that culture are beliefs about the mind that may indeed be quite valuable. I thought about you know how to bring these ideas home in, in sort of a, a, a way that's not quite parallel to your question, but I think it's an interesting story, which is that I, you know this anthropologist Julie Magruder, who I followed down to Zanzibar, came back to um, to Tacoma, where she was finishing her dissertation on this topic. And her husband, who had been with her down in Zanzibar, had a psychotic break. He had a manic, uh, psychotic manic episode where he uh, was arrested and thrown into a psychiatric ward. And, you know, Julie Magruder was in this interesting position of having just finished studying you know, another culture's uh, ways in which they ameliorate these problems by through cultural means. And she tried as best she could to take the lessons that she had learned in Zanzibar about how families, you know, keep this ill individual within the group, and how they use religious notions sometimes to uh, help uh, avoid blame and shame. And but interesting enough, try as she might uh, to take those ideas in Zanzibar and em- employ them to her benefit, she she simply couldn't do it. And I think the lesson in in that situation is that it's rather easy to export a drug or the DSM, but it is very difficult to import 
an idea like the spirit possession notion into our culture because it it is simply sort of layered very deeply into the cultural beliefs and it simply permeates a household and it's not something that's very easy to sort of say oh well that's a good thing we could we could take and use for ourselves so uh, in a way i think what other cultures possess is rather difficult to import because it's so layered into their belief system where our notions about a drug or a, about a diagnosis can rather easily be exported. Well, it sounds like in the example of, of Zanzibar and spirit possession, that it's not just a, a set of beliefs, but it's actually a whole social system. It's a whole social fabric. It's actually part of the very life, everyday life of that society. So it's not just simply interpreting a symptom differently, but the fact that you have, say, an extended family, that you have religious practices and rituals that people can be part of, and you'd have to kind of rebuild the community around the belief as well. I think it's a really interesting discussion because a lot of us are facing the fact that the mental health system in the U.S. has essentially failed. We're not giving people the kinds of treatments and supports, and we're not getting the outcomes. We're not getting the effectiveness that we want, and it's become a big marketing um, opportunity and very, very poor science and very, very uh, risky treatments. And some people are helped, certainly, but overall we're not making progress. And so I think the the points that your book is making really suggest to me that a lot of the things that we've been talking about on Madness Radio, what are the alternatives to the mental health system that we can look to other cultures and look to these basic principles and basic ideas, but then we have to think about how do we reinvent it here in the West. And I think the the idea of the hearing voices movement, the idea of focusing on uh, community responses rather than individual responses. I've had Paula Kaplan on the show before who does a lot of work on, on veterans and returning vets, and then often it isn't the case that sitting down individually, getting psychotherapy, taking a pill, it often isn't the best way to deal with war trauma, that maybe we need collective social responses, we need group healing and community development. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to learn from the research that you've done in your wonderful book, Crazy Like Us. So I really encourage people to read this book, and to, it's an incredibly valuable um, resource, and the, re- the research that you've done is, is tremendous. And how, is, how has the book been received? Um, what's been the response like? Is it selling well? What has been the reaction from both professionals anthropologists, academics, and the general public? Well, the, you know, it sparked a conversation that it, it's been really enjoyable for me to be involved in. The book is not intended to be didactic. Um, it's not intended to pound a, a point home. It's intended to be a, a spark of a conversation about these issues and to, and to allow us to think about our own national and subcultural mental health illnesses and how we can individually and as groups take charge of them and who we want to give uh, the power to to define these these states. So the conversation has been just a joy to be part of. I found it very interesting within the mental health profession that I have not gotten a lot of pushback. In fact, you know, the psychiatrists and uh, professionals that have responded to it have almost unanimously agreed with the fundamental principle of the argument. Uh, interestingly enough, though, they rarely agree about, uh, they rarely see it as a fault of their own. So they'll say things like, you're absolutely right, this is really a problem, but it's it's really uh, true of the, the guy down the hall or, you know, the guy in the other institute. We, when we go into a culture, we really know what we're doing. Um, so it's one of those things that I think is very easy to see about someone else uh, and very difficult to accept that, that maybe you've made some of the mistakes um, that I have um, documented, but I think um, I'm really enjoying the conversation uh, that it's it, it sparked and it sparked a lot of interest. So, how can we get in touch with you? Do you have a website? And again, tell us the name of the book. 
Well, I'd love to hear from uh, readers and people who uh, are thinking about this idea and uh, are enjo- enjoying the ideas in the book. Uh, and they can find me through uh, crazylikeus.com. There's an email there that can get right to me. And uh, I really uh, do uh, hope this conversation continues to go on. The book comes out in paperback uh, this spring, and I'm, I'm very much going to enjoy that conversation as well. Ethan Waters, thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. I very much enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to an interview with Ethan Waters. Ethan is a San Francisco-based author and freelance journalist who's been writing about psychiatry for over 20 years. His recent book is Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche, published by Free Press. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.